So what led you into this area of organ music? Well, I was always fascinated by the sounds of the French Baroque organ. Um, and at the time, there were no organs, and there still aren't any, any French Baroque organs in this country at all. Um, and um, so that the sounds I was hearing were obviously from the old vinyl LPs um, and the whole series of them. And I was just fascinated with the sounds because they were just so totally different. And then, um, of course, I bought the music and learned to play it. But there were so many questions in my mind. For example, uh, how fast does this piece go? What style is it written in? Because they're all called by the same title, Plinger, Granger, Récit de Thiers en Taille, things like that. Um, but they gave no clue as to the content, actually. Um, and also there were performance practice issues as well. Um, I mean, I'd read that um, the French didn't play their quavers equally even though they were written. So how did that work? Um, and um, I suppose eventually I did um, a PhD on that very subject and delved into the performance practice aspects. And um, the book I wrote is, um, uh, is the result of that. Um, and um, what I also found was that the standard narratives about this repertory, written by very well-established academics, had actually missed the point. Um, and um, they all dealt with the composer by chronology. So they start off with the earliest composers and say a few words about their music, and then start off with the later composers, um, and continue in that way. And what I found is that the genres themselves, the plangeur and the grangeur, had their own historical line of development. Um, and um, so that, um, that led to the, the writing of the book. Um, and after that, um, it was suggested to me that, that I, I really ought to, um, to, to record the music as, uh, as a result of my researches. And so that led to this series of uh, CDs. What's it like going to these villages and finding these organs and playing them? Are you received well or how are you received? I've been received very well indeed, actually. Um, astonishingly so. Um, and, um, for example, at the... Um, the, the last uh, the last project at uh, Bolbeck in in Normandy, um, the um, the mayoral office they they closed the roads for me so that they wouldn't interfere with the sound. They paid for the organ tuning. I've been I've had a wonderful time actually. I couldn't have done it with without help from my my friend Pierre Dubois, and um, also from Paul Arden Taylor who comes with me to record. Um, but um, I've been received. Um, very well indeed, actually. Of course, these, these historical, these old organs, they need to take um, some time to get used to. For example, at Salah Cathedral, um, I found that console dimensions, the actual area where you sit, was so narrow that I had to sort of play with my fingers almost just about three inches in front of my, my stomach, actually. Um, and um, the pedal board was offset by about um, five notes. So I, I really needed to re relearn my technique very, very quickly, within 24 hours, actually. So that when I got used to it, it was fine. But um, it's always a challenge, these old organs.
So could you tell us a bit more about your past projects um, that you have taken part in with Nimbus Records? Yes, of course, yes. Well, the first, the, the first project we did was um, at La Fleche, um, a, a smallish town near Tours in the Loire Valley. Um, and there they have an early 18th century organ in, in a chapel, which is now uh, the equivalent of um, a public school in England, actually, a military academy. And, um, and that was a wonderful experience. Um, there again, they closed the roads for me, which was, which was uh, uh, extremely nice of them, very helpful. Just quickly, whereabouts is this sort of geographically located in France? Where, where's the region? Well, they're all over the place, actually. Um, La Flèche in the Loire Valley, and then Saint-Michel-en-Tirache, that's um, on the eastern border of France, um, not too far from Brussels, actually. And that was an extraordinary organ, um, because it was in a monastery, and the monastery uh, was burnt down in the early 20th century, and the town couldn't afford to restore it. And so... um, they left it, and the monks left. So there's a partially restored monastery there. No monks, um, no services, but this organ dating from 1715 survives. And it's a bit of a miracle because it's right in the middle of the um, uh, First World War territory. Um, and um, the, the, the abbey itself was, uh, was gutted by fire at least twice, I, I think I remember. And um, so it's a bit of a miracle it survives, but it's, um, it's a wonderful acoustic. Um, and then we went to Osh Cathedral, um, which is within sight of the Pyrenees, actually. And um, there the organ dates from 1692. Uh, it's been restored um, several times, and, um, but the, the essence of the, the, the late 17th century organ is there. It's a big organ. Um, um, it's in the cathedral up on the hill, um, and we, rec- we recorded there. Um, but actually, what happened was that we were in the middle of a session. We were we were struck by a, um, a bolt of lightning, the building head on, and there was an enormous explosion. And we, we I stopped, and we all thought, "What was that?" And uh, then we found that the microphones didn't work, and the recording machine was scuppered, um, and the cathedral security system didn't work the alarms were, were 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 firing off the only thing that did work was the organ but of course we couldn't record it so that was uh scary actually that was because um it it also completely ruined um, um one night of recording um so um the following day and the following night um we we borrowed some equipment. We had some backup equipment, and um, and we completed the project. But it was touch and go, actually. For that, we weren't expecting that. <laughs> In general, how long do you record for? Over like how over how many days do you record? Um, <clears throat> well, at Sala Cathedral, where where I recorded a complete um, Degrigny, and that's probably the biggest project so far. I set aside four nights for that. I mean that's that's about it's a hundred pages of music and um, about forty five pieces, and there were people there who were astonished that that I was anticipating doing it in such a short time. But we did it. We we got we got through it, um, and um, the organ was wonderful. Actually, it's um, um, a slightly late organ for De Grigny. De Grigny died in seventeen o three, but there are no seventeenth century organs surviving that are big enough for de Grigny because all the big French classical organs uh, date from um, 
the late 18th century. Um, but this one, 1753, was wonderful. And actually, it was quite moving for me to do it because the first time I'd ever heard de Grigny was on the, um, the vinyl LPs that were recorded by Marie-Claire Alain, the great French organist, in the mid-60s. And I had these discs, and, um, uh, and that was she recorded those at Salah Cathedral before the organ was restored, actually. So I, it was lovely to go back there to have the, the organ restored to its original 1753 state and, um, and record the whole lot. late 17th century had a pretty standard design. They had one, one kind of set um, idea in their mind. Um, four keyboards, um, a grand org based on a 16-foot pitch, a positive organ based on an 8-foot pitch, a récit, which was uh, usually a cornet and a trumpet, and an echo division. And the pedal organ was another solo division, actually. It didn't uh, it wasn't the base of the harmonies like um, like you find with uh, German music and Bach and German organs. Um, so the French organ was unique. It was like nothing else, actually. Um, but they were, it was so consistent in design that they called the pieces, they titled the pieces, the plangeur and grangeur, by the registrations they could use. In other words, you could play a plangeur in Paris and then go to Bordeaux and pull out the same stops and it would sound exactly the same. That was the ideal, the standard model. Um, of course, it did develop towards the late 18th century. It got bigger and got deeper, actually. But um, nevertheless, the standard model... Um, was um, in situ from about 1670 right up to the revolution, 1789-ish. Um, and um, but the the, the the composers themselves um, they do vary in character enormously. I mean, De Grigny. Um, I have an idea that De Grigny was um, a, a, a cool intellectual with huge amounts of uh, musical invention. Um, uh, François Couperin, for example, whose um, organ masses were published um, when he was 21, so he was a young man, really, and in, in, those, in that music he's, he's trying all sorts of experiments. Um, he's trying to mix and match the French uh, dances with the Italian styles, um, and, um, uh, and he's completely different. And same with Boivin. They all have their own personalities. But what fascinates me about the music is the way in which um, the established genres um, were a vehicle for the later styles. So the further you go through the late 17th century, um, the more you, you can trace the influences of um, the French minuets, bourrées, gavottes, Italian string music, um, French songs, um, and uh, uh, um, excerpts from operas even. Um, so that whilst the, the organ remained pretty pretty static in terms of development of design and 
the music was all called by the same titles. Nevertheless, the content within um, was changing and developing all the time. And that's, that's why my book actually is, um, has chapters based on the plein jeu and the grand jeu and the récit, um, so that you can trace this chronological development um, uh, within each, each genre. And that's, um, that's the first time that's been, been written about. Yes, certainly. Yes, well, Degrini is um, is my hero. Actually, there's certainly um, <clears throat> his music is the the absolute pinnacle of invention. Whereas François Couperin writes fugues in four parts, Degrini writes in five parts, and his big Offertoire sur les grands jeux um, is an enormous piece, but huge, long-range structural command. So I was very pleased to to record it, and I write about it in the book, um, but. The the paradox is that the source of de Grigny's music, the print of 1699, was very badly printed. Either the engraver couldn't read de Grigny's handwriting, or he was just an incompetent engraver. But there's all sorts of errors in, in the music. And um, um, there are wrong accidentals, there are ties misplaced, there are... Um, Errors in notes and the, the the mistakes haven't been erased. All sorts of things, even wrong titles. There's a wrong title. He says Fugar Five, whereas actually it's a, a four-part fugue. And the stature of the music was significant enough so that the um, complete manuscript copies were made by no lesser figures than Johann Sebastian Bach and his cousin J. G. Walzer. And um, they recognised this quality, this fantastic quality of. Um, of de Grigny's music and I, I feel that um, there is there is another edition of the music that I, I wanted to make um, there are editions um, but it's impossible it's impossible actually to to, to 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 produce a really authentic accurate edition uh, according to de Grigny's intentions we just don't have the sources the sources are flawed there, there's no um, Autograph, no manuscript autograph by de Grigny. All we have is this 1699 print, which Bach and Walter copied. Um, and so therefore, with, with my experience of studying the whole repertory for a long period and recording the music, um, I decided that to, to make my own edition of de Grigny. Um, it can no, be no more than a subjective edition, but um, I finished it um, last week and... Um, sent it off to Adolphius of Bologna. And um, I know that a lot of people are, are eagerly awaiting this edition to come out. So um, I'm hoping that it'll be um, um, the, a, a really, really good edition um, of de Grigny that's come out of um, research and scholarly attitude to, um, to performing. And, um, and it's got some of, of the ideas I have, where, um, which I... 
I, I hope will people will recognise as being um, a more authentic intention, you know, uh, authentic reflecting to Greenie's intentions. Of course, I can never prove it, but nobody else can. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any other upcoming things you're working on at the moment that you'd like to tell us a bit more about? Or? Um, <clears throat> well, we've done six projects so far. <clears throat> And I'm very pleased with them all. Um, and the next project um, will be um, uh, a CD of Louis Marchand. Marchand was was the uh, the most famous French virtuoso organist um, in at the time. Um, of course, you might remember his um, famous uh, would-be competition with J.S. Bach. Um, it was set up by Pizendel, the violinist, I think, at the court of Dresden, and it was to be um, conducted around a harpsichord. The king of Saxony was there, and um, aristocratic ladies also, and Bach was there in preparation for this great competition, and Marchand didn't appear, and it was subsequently found out that Marchand fled back to Paris the night before. But I, I have great sympathy for Marchand because he might have um, heard Bach and he was, would be aware that uh, Bach would, would um, uh, uh, improvise hugely long fugues on subjects that were given. And of course this was, um, this was not what French organists um, were up to at all. French fugues were incredibly concise. And of course it was in front of a German audience. So um, I think maybe if home the competition... Advantage. <laughs> Sorry, yes. home advantage. Yeah, so. <laughs> yes, exactly. And um, I, I think that if the competition had been held in Paris, then the tables might have, might have been turned. But Marshall was also um, a pretty wild chap. I mean, he was accused of, of uh, battery, um, assault on his wife, mm. and um, he was going through um, a divorce. He must have been a fiery chap. Um, and, uh, but his music is... Um, is terrific and um, uh, real virtuoso stuff. Um, the scores are quite skeletal, actually. Not a lot of ornamentation, not a lot of detail. Um, I mean, I've got facsimiles of the um, the manuscripts and the the posthumous uh, printed edition of his music, um, and I'm I'm hoping to play it in a manner which Marchand would have approved of. So I'm adding adding lots of um, lots of ornaments and. Um, runs and roulades and things like that and we're going to record it at um, uh, an organ dating from 1753 um, at Saint-Antoine Saint L'Abbaye which is um, west of Grenoble in June um, and um, that's all fixed up actually, the church is booked and, and we, we're um, all I've got to do is arrange the, the ferry or the flights um, and so that's, that's the next project. After that um, I have in mind to um, record a CD of Noels. Noels were um, obviously, you know, variations on, on Christmas carols um, and French ones. And when, when, um, when Noels became popular in the 17th century, um, they, they used all sorts of um, regional folk songs and put um, um, Christmas words to them. And um, some of the improvisations uh, that were were made. There were apparently the Archbishop of Paris banned Balbatra from improvising um, Noels at the Church of Saint Roche uh, because of because it incited public disorder. <laughs> so there, there were a lot of people interested, um, and um, 
it's, it's, it's wonderfully attractive music. Mm. And um, I thought I would make a CD of um, Noels from throughout the period, from the earliest ones to, um, to the latest ones, a period of about 140 years or so. Um, um, and then we'll see, see what happens after that. Exactly. Just a quick follow-up. The public disorder, was that just due to pure excitement about these Noels coming out? Were they the popular music of the day that people sort of flocked to in large number, or was it...? Uh... Yes, good question. I, I think probably the latter, actually. Mm. I mean, this was an era where, where there was no, um, no radio broadcast, no recordings, obviously. You went to church, and, and um, you were excited by what you heard. I mean, imagine if you were a, a peasant in Chartres, and um, on, on a particular day you, you go into the cathedral... And first of all, you can't see anything. And then gradually, the, the colours of the stained glass, they impinge on your, your sight as your sight gets used to it. And then the sounds of the, the organ coming from high up in the nave. It must have been the nearest thing to, um, to heaven in their perception. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, uh, for Noels, I think, I think they became extremely popular and I think they excited a large number of people. This was probably the popular music of the day, the Noels. I think. <laughs> <laughs>